Uh, The reading this morning is Philippians 3, verses 1 to 21, on page 1784. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Well, thanks, Ellen. Um, We're starting today with an important question. Uh, You'll see it printed on the top of your sermon outline if you have a leaflet there. Um, How confident can we be in our salvation? How confident can we be in our salvation? Uh, Now, many of you here will have a pretty good idea of how Christians could answer that question, 
Um, but before we jump to the easy answers, uh, let's first just consider how that question can uncover um, some pretty important topics or some pretty important ideas. Um, some people would say on that question, well, if you're confident that you'll be saved, uh, that God on Judgment Day will weigh up your life, the good and the bad, like, sure, you might hope for a good outcome, but they will say to be confident that God's approval of your life uh, is okay, that's actually just arrogance. How can you be so confident? How dare you presume to have the right answers, to live in such a way that's you know, holier than thou, um, just that you think you can walk up to the throne of the Almighty God and uh, just such arrogance, some might say. I think a far more likely response in our day and age is, well, why would you even ask that question? Like, what is there to really worry about? Um, you know, God's supposed to be a God of love, uh, not a God of judgment, surely. He's only going to, uh, you know, cast out those who are the worst of the worst. Only those will be cast out from eternal life. Why would you even think to ask that question about confidence? Well, you might be in a group of people uh, who would say, well, I don't know. I don't know how confident I should be on that day. Uh, especially if that's you, if you're just not sure. I hope today will be really helpful for you. Uh, because we're going to be exploring how the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus, means we can have the most complete confidence, 100% assurance, uh, we can be confident in our salvation. Uh, but we can do that in a way that's not at all arrogant, in fact, uh, quite the opposite. And we can do that in a way, have great confidence in a way that keeps a healthy view of God's character, uh, His holiness, uh, His moral perfection, His justice. That is, we can be confident in our salvation without having to assume that God is an old fuddy-duddy who actually just doesn't really care about us or how we really live. Instead, uh, we can keep that good and clear teaching of the Bible that God is perfectly just, He will right every wrong, and so He does demand moral perfection with standards far higher than our own, and yet, uh, rather than have some sort of crippling anxiety about standing before God, a perfect God, on Judgment Day, I hope we'll all realise afresh, uh, perhaps some for the first time, that we really do have great reason to rejoice as God's people because we can have great confidence in our salvation. Uh, as we look through Philippians chapter 3, we'll see uh, why this sort of confidence matters so much. It's not just theory, it really matters a lot. Uh, because if, if Christians are not confident, uh, then we become very vulnerable uh, to ideas that will take us away from the joys of the gospel. Now, on the other hand... If we're too blasé, if we have confidence in the wrong places about our salvation, if we're really confident but for the wrong reasons, uh, or if we just don't consider our salvation precious, then we might end up settling for a life of just mediocrity, uh, coasting along with no real transformation. And then we'd miss out on the rich joys of a life with Jesus. So as Paul starts here, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, uh, it'd be great to keep your Bibles open in front of you, uh, as, we, as we always encourage, to have a look at it together. In verse 1, he gives this wonderful instruction, rejoice in the Lord. Now, this command is not just a, you know, a nice email sign-off, as you write to a Christian friend. Uh, rejoice in the Lord is to be the heartbeat of our lives, going to Jesus for all our joy, for all our happiness. And as Paul goes on, he gives the reasons why we should rejoice in Jesus. And while the alternatives are just so lame, uh, so vacuous, and actually often so downright destructive. I should say, though, it does feel like a bit of a gear change going from verse 1, rejoice in the Lord, to verse 2, uh, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. It's quite the gear change, isn't it? A bit, bit clunky 
feels a bit like going from uh, communion to the birthday song. Uh, just a bit of a strange, uh, strange change to make. A bit more aggressive in Paul's case. And it really stands out in Philippians. Philippians is such a positive and encouraging letter. It just seems to come out of the blue. Like, what's made Paul so worked up, so angry? Uh, we aren't given historical details on this one. Uh, But as Paul goes on to talk about circumcision and about confidence, uh, he's speaking mostly to a Gentile church, Uh, we can piece together, knowing from elsewhere in the New Testament, what he's talking about. Um, There were teachers, preachers, uh, who went around teaching Gentile Christians. They weren't really fully Christian, uh, unless they were also Jewish. Uh, That is, they needed to get circumcised as well as following Jesus. Paul is saying here, watch out for that sort of teaching. It's rubbish. It's dangerous. Because those teachers, uh, they might be well-intentioned, but they're actually preying on a real vulnerability. Uh, If we have a limited confidence in our salvation in Christ, well, false teaching will come along that says, yes, you might be saved by Christ, you might be saved by grace, great, but there is this other thing you must do to really secure your salvation. There's this thing you must do. Christ plus something else will save you. If we lack confidence in our salvation, we would be vulnerable to latching on to whatever that thing is. I mean, who wouldn't take out extra insurance uh, if you thought it would help you uh, in the afterlife? Um, In the time of Paul, in the early church, the other thing that was being taught uh, uh, to help with salvation, uh, to to secure salvation, was circumcision. Uh, The idea with that was that it would prove uh, that you belong to God properly, uh, you can be confident in your salvation, not just because of what Jesus has done to forgive our sins, uh, but also because of this other thing as well, which is keeping the Jewish law. Uh, these teachers, they might be well-intentioned, but they're evildoers. Because as Paul goes on here, uh, they're teaching people to put confidence in all the wrong places. And so then, to build up our confidence as the readers of this letter and to help us not be vulnerable, uh, and the Philippians, uh, Paul sets out to show how worthless this kind of teaching is, uh, placing confidence in anything about us, uh, placing confidence in anything we do or what we're like. Um, Paul sets out to show how, how much of a waste and how dangerous that is. Uh, because all our, confidence, our right confidence ought to be in Christ and His saving work. And so verse 3, he, uh, he says the very odd and memorable line, uh, it is we who are the circumcision. Uh, what a strange thing to say, it is we who are the circumcision. Uh, for some reason, as far as I know, there are no Christian songwriters who have come up a song with that title. Uh, that would be quite a memorable song, wouldn't it? Uh, we are the circumcision, that would be a great chorus to sing together. Um, there's some great, mater- great material here. I-, I think perhaps for Kelly's next songwriting challenge, she's shaking her head. Uh, I think I'd love to see it on Kelly's next album with some, uh, some diss tracks, uh, taking some false teachers to task. Um, I'd buy that one. Um, circumcision here, it's, it's never just been an action, uh, historically, going back in the Old Testament. It was never just an action God wanted from Israel. Uh, it was far more than that. Uh, circumcision was always a sign, a sign that God had chosen uh, freely uh, to enter himself into a covenant a special and binding relationship with Israel. God had chosen them. Uh, And circumcision was the reminder, the proof, uh, the sign. uh, From one generation to the next, God had set his seal. These are my people. Uh, His personal choice to to bless and to cherish them. 
Now, that's what it was like in the Old Covenant. Paul is saying here, we don't need to be circumcised like the Israelites uh, because, well, firstly, we're living under the New Covenant and it's no longer circumcision as the sign that we are God's chosen people. So in verse 3, Paul goes on to tell us what are the signs, uh, if not circumcision, what are we looking for? What are the signs that we truly are God's new covenant people? He tells us, well, we know because we serve God by His Spirit, uh, we boast in Christ Jesus, And we don't. We do not have confidence in our flesh, in what we can achieve ourselves. That is, the sign that we belong to God is that we know our efforts won't save us. Rather, we know it's by Christ and Christ alone. That's where we find salvation. As we look to the cross and see what Jesus has done there, that's where we find our confidence. As Paul will go on to write about in verses 8 to 9. Before he gets there, though, Paul keeps uh, trying to drive this point home, uh, the idea that no one, uh, no one can earn salvation. No one can contribute to it at all. The idea that uh, anyone could sort of waltz into heaven because of our efforts, uh, for Paul, it's absolute nonsense. And he proves this by saying in verses 4 to 6, here's the proof, look at me, uh, the Apostle Paul, Exhibit A. If anyone in all of world history could have confidence uh, in his flesh, in his, his own ability, his own merit, his own goodness, uh, if someone was going to impress God, it was going to be Paul. He's an outstanding guy, uh, brilliant in every way, moral, very devout, a very good man. Just impressive in every way. Uh, from the second half of verse 4, he starts laying out the reasons he has. Uh, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Uh, you don't want to play the, uh, the game with Paul, who's more deserving of salvation? Uh, he's going to beat you, uh, hands down. Here he goes. Uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day. That is, uh, from his first week, he's already ticking all the boxes. He can trace his lineage, not just back to Abraham, not just to Israel or just to the tribe of Benjamin. He says he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, that is, he's possibly saying something about who his parents are at that point. Uh, very devout, Jewish, very Jewish in all the best ways. He's talking about his pedigree, isn't he? Uh, Paul has the very best pedigree. And what's more, he builds on that with incredible moral accomplishment. He was a Pharisee. Um, Now, we often think negatively when we hear about Pharisees. Jesus uh, really doesn't take to them too kindly most of the time. Uh, But just bear in mind, they were an incredibly serious, very devout group. They were strict, uh, but they were very concerned about breaking the law. They tried not to break God's law as hard as they could. In fact, they'd put a fence around the law. Uh, if there's a law that they weren't supposed to break, they'd make sure there'd be other laws they'd put around that law so they wouldn't get close to it. Uh, say if uh, the road uh, speed limit is 100, a Pharisee would set their own mental speed limit at 80. So they don't even get close to possibly just bumping over to 101. Now, most people, I think, probably didn't like the Pharisees that much, but you can respect that kind of uh, religious zeal, can't you? And he goes on to talk about his zeal. That is, he didn't just, just reluctantly keep God's law, he was passionate about God's laws. Uh, so when people came along, Christians, uh, who Paul thought were making a mockery of God and God's laws, well, Paul threw them in jail. He didn't just sit back idly by, he did something, he was zealous. But here's the big one at the end. As for righteousness based on the law, he was faultless. Now, he seems to be using exaggeration and some um, hyperbole there. You see the point? He gave it a better shot than anyone else, trying to do what he could do to prove to God that he should be saved to eternity. But it was all a waste of time. 
Actually, worse than that, he now counts it as loss. Not at all a profit, all loss. It didn't get him closer to salvation. It actually somehow put him backwards. I think the idea is if we look at Christ, if we look at his life and compare ourselves to him, you realise, well, that's actually the standard God requires of us if we want to be faultless according to the law. And Paul was saying, well, actually, none of us can live up to that standard. Now, I doubt too many of us here are wondering, well, do I need to be more Jewish? Do I need to get circumcised? I doubt that's a problem many of us have wrestled with. Uh, And yet, what do we take from this, I think, is that same warning to watch out. Uh, Watch out for any hints that we might somehow make any part of our salvation depending upon Jesus plus something else. I say that, I think, because by default, every one of us, uh, we do have a a need somehow to prove ourselves. Every one of us wants to contribute to our salvation. It's kind of a default setting, I think, often. Uh, We, by default, drift towards thinking our salvation depends on something I do. Uh, We want to somehow have a works-based urge uh, to move towards, um, to contribute somehow. False teachers, or as Paul would call them, dogs, uh, they will encourage that. They'll come along and they'll say, yes, yes, Christ, but also this. So watch out. My guess is it won't be obvious, um, and you might have come across it in all sorts of forms, I suppose. Um, You might hear some people uh, be very dogmatic about things a Christian must do, perhaps something like baptism, that you simply must be baptised or you won't be saved. It's rubbish. Now, baptism... Baptism is something we ought to do. Uh, It's something we do out of union with Christ and obedience to Him. But it doesn't make us more safe in our salvation. We are already safe if our trust is in Christ. It's a very sort of narrow kind of way it might be applied. But more generally, often uh, teachers and Christians can um, drift towards legalism. Uh, It might start out for good reason. That is, uh, we want to grow in holiness, don't we? Uh, We want to become more like Christ. But very quickly... Uh, It can become a confidence-eroding, works-driven approach to salvation. And the way I think you can usually spot it is because a grace starts being treated with suspicion. And in its place, all sorts of rules start popping up uh, because people are more comfortable with rules uh, than grace a lot of the time in that kind of setting. And then I think in a church, if it's drifting that way, you'll notice that uh, a church that instead of serving each other freely, uh, kindly, uh, out of love, sacrificially, instead ministries become more of a way of proving how dedicated we are and how saved we really are. And I think pride can sort of jump in there at that point and uh, if we're really involved in this ministry or that ministry, we can just judge others who aren't. It gets ugly quickly, doesn't it? If our confidence isn't in the right place. Today, as we look at Paul's righteous credentials, uh, we wouldn't make that same list, would we? Uh, I don't think any of us here would say um, uh, we're Pharisees, quite proudly. Um, But do we sometimes make a list just a bit like it, even subconsciously? Uh, Somehow there's a a list we might have to uh, help us feel better about uh, standing before God. We rely somehow on these things. Uh, Perhaps something like how financially generous we are. Uh, maybe about how little we complain in a, in a ministry area we're part of. Maybe we take pride in how much we push ourselves on and serve others at great cost to ourselves. Or maybe, if uh, perhaps you're a bit like me, you've had the extraordinary privilege of studying at Bible college or just reading a really great material. Perhaps you have a great zeal for right doctrine, a good grasp on the Bible and what we can know about God. 
does that sometimes become a source of spiritual pride? Uh, Like our knowledge somehow proves our worth to God who knows everything? Now, hear me say, those are, of course, all good things I've just mentioned. Um, But do you see how if our confidence isn't solely in Christ, we drift towards finding confidence in these other places and we become bitterly disappointed and quite possibly proud? Uh, For our youth here today, uh, I know many are off at Redef Camp, which is a great thing. We'll pray for them uh, in a moment, and many other youth are away on holidays. Um, But for you guys, I just wanted to point out um, something I think Paul's picking up on here uh, that's helpful for you. Uh, Paul's explaining how he used to think uh, about why God would save him. He used to think, well, belonging to the right family would help him. Belonging to the right family would help him be saved. But now he's saying, actually, no, that doesn't save us at all. Uh, for our youth, um, if you're finding yourself, you're living under your, your parents' faith, sort of that's your kind of confidence, is your parents' faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to consider that there must be a point where you make it your own faith. Uh, we can't continue to rely on the faith of our parents. When you turn to Jesus, uh, not just as the Saviour and Lord of your family, uh, but as your Lord and as your Saviour, as you put all your confidence and trust in Him, uh, that's where we have uh, full confidence in our salvation. And I'd, I'd encourage you, if, if you want to have a youth listening on, to do that today. Uh, at the very, very least, it'd be great uh, to chat more uh, with that about your youth leader. As we look on, though, uh, we see in verses 7 to 9 where Paul really focuses on how wonderful it is when we do that, when we turn to Christ... And in him we find every reason for our confidence. Um, Paul compares his old way of doing things, his old achievements on his own merit, and now, compared to Jesus, he says, they're a waste of time. In fact, worse than that, they're garbage, absolute rubbish. Because, and here's the really key idea today, the end of verse 8, the reason all those things don't matter, verse 8, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That is, how are we ever going to be righteous in God's eyes? How will God ever judge that we are right with Him? That's what the word righteousness means. How will God judge that we are right with Him, that we are righteous? It's not like the anxious person might think uh, by clearing enough hurdles in our life, um, sort of just having enough good things outweighing, outweighing the bad things. And it's not like the blasé person might think as well that God only sets the hurdles really low. It's pretty easy to prove we're good. It's not like that at all. Instead, Christ uh, has cleared the highest, most impossible of hurdles. Uh, he has lived the life that is righteous in every way. An extraordinary thing. The heart of the Christian faith is that when we trust in Jesus, he makes us righteous, just like him. If we want to be righteous on that day of judgment, we must listen to Paul. Even he couldn't do that himself. He turned to Christ, he put his trust in him, his faith in him. That's the only way to be righteous. In fact, that's the only only way to understand what Christianity is all about, that we're not saved by what we do. It's actually only through faith in Jesus that we are made righteous like him. It's like he gives us his his robe of righteousness to cloak ourselves in, covering up our own inadequacies. He makes us righteous just by faith. Now, I realise that idea is uh, is both offensive and wonderful. Uh, It's offensive, isn't it? Because it says that we, we cannot be good enough. We can't. No matter how hard we try to impress God, uh, the offensive thing here is, is we can't do it. It takes genuine humility uh, to kind of wrestle with that and to, con- to consider that uh, to be true. 
But it's also so wonderful uh, because this is saying we don't need to do this ourselves. Christ has already done it for us. Uh, We are counted righteous before God because of what Christ has done for us and we're counted righteous now. This is now and into eternity as we trust in him. That is a fact. It's a wonderful thing. It's true, regardless of who you are, no matter your backgrounds, no matter what your family was like, uh, what your belief system is like, how messed up our lives may have become, every one of us, as we trust in Jesus, has the entirety of his righteousness, all of it, given to us by God. And it's all on the basis of faith. A pretty big word, faith. Uh, We're hoping to come and explore that word a bit more. And what what does it mean to believe? What is faith? We'll come back to that later in the year, hopefully, in a, a standalone sermon. Today, though, I was, um, something that might be helpful, I was reading uh, this week about a missionary uh, who was trying to translate the Bible into a local language that uh, he was on a small Pacific island and trying to translate the Bible. Uh, he was struggling to find a word in their language to translate faith. So he's thinking about that. Now, as he was thinking about that, someone interrupted him. They were, in, they were in great trouble. They needed his help. They asked this missionary, please, can I come and lean heavily upon you? Uh, and he realized that is a good description of faith. I put, actually put it in your leaflets today. The description of faith is to lean heavily upon Christ. The missionary goes on to write and explain a bit more. Faith is leaning heavily upon Christ, simply leaning the whole weight of our needs upon Him and finding in Him acceptance before the presence of God and a righteousness which could never be ours by our own works. Uh, If you're struggling, uh, if you're finding um, you're lacking confidence in your salvation... The key here is to remember who your confidence is in, who it is you're trusting in, who you're leaning on. It's Christ. He is the most stable support in the universe. He's powerful, he's kind. He won't drop us, he won't be disgusted by us, he won't let us down. We can have confidence of our salvation entirely because who our confidence is in. And that is why Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord. When we're leaning on Christ, when we're confident and content, having everything we need, that's where we find incredible joy. Because after all, what incredible gift, what great mercy and grace to just give us what we can't earn, a gift, righteousness for ourselves. Uh, For those of you here today who would like that confidence, uh, who would like to have um, assurance of eternal life, if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, if you haven't yet leaned on Him for your salvation, you can. It may be a hard step to first acknowledge that none of us deserve God's approval. But it's a humbling step. That's the only way, and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. Turn to God, knowing that we can find righteousness. And perhaps I can ask you today, why not today? Why not start trusting in Jesus, leaning on Him for your salvation? As Paul continues in the rest of this chapter, uh, we can start to see some of the ways that this confidence in Christ gives our lives great motivation, uh, a great desire to be changed, not just sort of floating along, uh, to keep having our lives transformed. See, when we know the wonderful news that we have righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, verse 10, I think Paul gives us one of the most incredible uh, sort of summaries of a life goal. Here it is, verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. How is that for a life goal? To know Christ, not just know about Him, not just following Him, but to know Him. 
It's the language of relationship, isn't it? To know him. If you're looking for direction in life or something to aspire to, uh, this is it, isn't it? Uh, this is what life is all about. There is, there is nothing more wonderful or more glorious in all of history uh, that we can do with our lives than to know Christ. As Paul starts explaining what he means by this, this, this desire to know Christ, it's clear that it involves becoming more like Christ. Uh, for instance, uh, Paul goes on to talk about how going through suffering uh, is something he kind of knows, we part of knowing Christ more. Going through suffering in the same way Christ did, with great humility and grace and trust in his heavenly Father. So in verses 10 to 17, Paul is talking about growth, that is, growing in knowing Jesus. And as we do that, becoming more and more like him. Um, the main thing I want to point out in these verses uh, today is that even the Apostle Paul, uh, the most legendary missionary, the, the model mature Christian, who just knew the Bible really, really well, so well he actually wrote some of it, he even met the risen Jesus personally, even the Apostle Paul. Even he says, I need to keep growing. I'm not there yet. Uh, have a look at verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. Again, at the end of verse 13, uh, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. If even the very impressive Paul didn't put up his feet, he's got confidence in his salvation, absolutely, but at that point he doesn't put up his feet, he doesn't just coast. He's, he, he's really wanting to grow, isn't he? He's wanting to be more like Christ and we ought to do the same. I take it uh, to truly rejoice in the Lord, like verse 1, if we want to find the joy of life, it's to know Christ and to be changed to be more and more like him. Uh, For those who have been following Jesus for a while now, and perhaps those of us who feel like we have been coasting uh, for a while, uh, especially when it comes to growth in godliness, uh, this can be a challenge, can't it, to kind of kick back into gear and to, okay, I need to keep growing, keep pressing on, keep striving. Um. Often I think we can kind of fool ourselves that we've changed enough for now, uh, we're mature enough for now. Um, perhaps we might have got on top of some of the big obvious sins in our lives and we think, oh, that's great, I'm not murdering people anymore, that's good, uh, that's enough change for me. But we have to keep pressing on, as Paul does here. Verse 16, as he puts it this way, to live up to what we have already obtained. Uh, to be more and more like Christ in our manner, in our character, in our actions, in our prayer lives. There is so much we all have to grow in. God has a lifelong project in each of our lives, doesn't he? Uh, It takes our life to grow, to make us more like Jesus. And like Paul, uh, he uses those kind of very active words, pressing on, striving. Uh, That requires something of us. We can't just coast. Now, there may be some really practical things we could do, like 10-point steps to kind of growing, uh, but I think today the first and uh, main thing I want to stress is that we may need to prayerfully reflect on our attitude first uh, and, as need be, repent of an attitude that says, actually, I don't really want to know Christ much more. I'm, I'm happy how it is. Uh, maybe we need to repent of not really wanting to be more like Him, knowing that it might be hard, it might involve suffering. It's a question to reflect on. Do we really want to know Christ? Not just settling, but let's seek out knowing him more, year in, year out. Well, in these final few verses of uh, chapter 18, 
uh, we see how we can have, uh, sorry, we can see how having confidence in our salvation really changes every part of our lives. I'll just touch on these uh, verses lightly and quickly today. Um, I just want to point out that we can be so sure of our salvation, again, because of Christ, um, that we ought to be thinking of ourselves, firstly, as citizens of heaven. Um, notice it's not that one day we will go to heaven, it's that we are citizens of heaven now. Here we are, sitting in Tonsley, but where the reality is, if we're believing in Christ, we are already citizens of heaven. That's where our identity uh, is already wound up. Uh, we can be so sure of this, being citizens of heaven, uh, because of what Christ has already done for us. But before Paul kind of explains or unpacks much about that at all, he first describes from verse 18 how not to live uh, as citizens of the world do. Uh, that is, those who are very much bound up with earthly things. Uh, you notice as well, Paul does this in tears. Uh, he's speaking about those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Uh, it's a great thing to notice, I think, because as much as Paul unleashes on those who preach a false gospel, the dogs, uh, here he is in tears as he considers the many precious souls uh, who stand against, who are enemies of Christ and what he did on the cross. In verse 19, Paul describes that unless they change course, they are on a pathway to destruction. Their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. Now, um, their God is their stomach. I don't think he's describing people with a big appetite or uh, I don't think he's having a shot at foodies so much. Uh, the idea seems to be that if someone is worshipping their stomach, um, that's the thing. The only thing that drives them forward in life is their own appetites, uh, their own desires, not just physical hunger. It's, it's a, a more metaphorical, I think. Um, this is the sort of person who will reject all authority outside of themselves, outside of their own satisfaction. Uh, especially rejecting the right authority of Jesus and just seeking instead what brings pleasure. Uh, that's what it is, I think has in mind as he's talking about uh, people who worship their stomachs. And I think the, the result of that is that even shameful things, they end up celebrating and taking pride in even evil things they will call good. This, this pattern he's describing here it seems to be the pattern of those who are citizens of this world. And a contrast for us is that we are citizens of heaven. That means we have all the privileges and all the obligations of those who belong to Jesus. Our stomach, ourselves, are not the point of reference to drive us forward in life, um, but it's our joy in Him, it's our desire to know Him that drives us forward. As verse 20 continues, uh, we have also an eager desire to see Jesus. He says we eagerly await our Saviour, eagerly await our Saviour, Jesus to come, and to, and to make us entirely like Him in every way. This is the sort of confidence we can have looking forward to a wonderful day when we see Jesus. And we should have this confidence, not because of anything we do, because of what Christ has already done for us. Looking forward, knowing that everything good is still in store for us. And that's the sort of confidence we can have living as citizens of heaven, uh, not fussed so much by the shiny things of this world, the trivial things of this world, but instead leaning on Christ and finding our joy in Him. Will you join me as we pray? Uh, Heavenly Father, thanks so much for the incredible grace and mercy you have shown us. Uh, thank you for the way you've sent your son Jesus to be the way that you make us righteous. Uh, thank you, Jesus, for doing that on the cross at an incredible cost to yourself. Please help each one of us lean heavily on Jesus all our days. Help us not trust or have confidence in anything we do, but help us to trust entirely in Christ and his righteousness. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we, we want to know you. 
Uh, We want to be like you. And we do look forward to the day when we will see you. Help us until then find great joy living as citizens of heaven, fully confident of your love and acceptance of us. Amen.